high pressure processing is a um, pasteurization technique that's really been around for probably 10, maybe even 15 years, 20 years ago, maybe it was even um, available, but few companies were using it then. So in the last 10 years, we've definitely seen a large growth in this space. So if for those who are looking for something that is minimally pasteurized or not using high heat, or maybe even not using a whole lot of preservatives in their foods, they can check and see whether or not can pressure on its own take care of inactivating pathogens and maybe some of the spoilage microorganisms that are inherent in our foods. And so hopefully we can also extend their shelf life. So this is what the technology is about. It's kind of using pressure instead of the traditional temperature for processing our foods to render them safe. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Hi everyone, welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Julia Pazali, and I'm very happy to have with me today, Dr. Grace Danau, to talk with us about HPP in raw pet food. Welcome, Dr. Danau, it's great to have you here. Great, thank you for inviting me. And before we start talking about the foam part and HPP, uh, do you mind sharing with us and with our audience your background and how we end up in your current uh, position today? Sure. Uh, so, as Julia said, my name is Grace Danau. I'm a research associate professor over at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I come from the food science and technology department. I'm also affiliated with its food processing center, which is sort of like an applied research arm of the department. The goal of the center is for a number of us, a couple of faculty and staff, to interact with industry. So, you know, as more and more companies kind of reduce their R&D size, Sometimes what they may need is to reach out to, let's say, a university or a private lab for testing or for consultation. So somebody like me with a food processing background landed in the food processing center, which just happened to have two HPPs or high pressure processing machines when I arrived. So as soon as I came in, they were like, we really need somebody to, um, to take care of these um, equipment and the laboratory because we keep getting inundated with um, questions or um, some companies are needing help. And then it's sort of just being thrown into the fire. It's like, okay, you have the equipment, now go help a whole bunch of different companies and especially the raw pet food industry. That's awesome. So you have been working with the pet food industry for a while then and uh, helping them with the raw pet food safety concerns. Yes. Uh, so I arrived here in 2017. And again, it's just kind of like, you know, several things kind of coming together and making University of Nebraska pretty unique in the HPP space. Number one, uh, Universal Pure is um, one of their locations is also here in Lincoln. And so they are an HPP service provider or a toller, maybe uh, for those who are familiar with the industry, that's, um, I guess, a term that we use. And then the other thing is, since Nebraska does a lot of meat processing, there's a lot of meat byproducts from the state that end up being used as an ingredient in pet foods anyway. So we have a couple of raw pet food co-manufacturing facilities also um, in the state. And uh, that's for sure makes a great place to be in too. <laughs> right. <A> great location. <laughs> 
so just to get started on the same page, do you mind defining us what is HPP? Sure. Uh, so high pressure processing is a um, pasteurization technique that's really been around for probably 10, maybe even 15 years, 20 years ago, maybe it was even um, available, but few companies were using it then. So in the last 10 years, we've definitely seen a large growth in this space. So if for those who are looking for something that is minimally pasteurized or not using high heat, or maybe even not using a whole lot of preservatives in their foods, they can check and see whether or not can pressure on its own take care of inactivating pathogens and maybe some of the spoilage microorganisms that are inherent in our foods. And so hopefully we can also extend their shelf life. So this is what the technology is about. It's kind of using pressure instead of the traditional temperature for processing our foods to render them safe. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it became more popular in the pet food industry after the FISMA. Uh, which... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, with uh, what do you call this, just in general, the rise of people wanting, you know, better quality ingredients, maybe a cleaner label, and then people wanting something a little bit minimally processed, then, you know, there's a whole bunch of different kind of non-thermal technologies that have come to be tested. And HPP just happens to be one of the first ones that um, from a commercial standpoint, um, was really effective. Um, we have, um, I guess, the avocado guacamole industry to thank for that. So that's actually one of the very first big successes in the U.S. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. So everything started with guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> started with guacamole and now we're in pet food. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And so using HPP, we can inactivate uh, uh, harmful bacteria and spoilage microorganism without heat, right? Does it activate spores or I don't think so, right? Well, it's using pressure. So, and we're using pressures that are um, actually about seven times the amount of pressure that you would feel if you were to dive all the way into the Mariana Trench or the bottommost point of the ocean. So it's really tremendous pressures. And in general, HPP works with vegetative cells. So something has to be already be alive in the food in order for it to be, um, to be effective. So there are some pathogens out there like Clostridium botulinum. These are, they're usually in spore forms or they can form spores. Spores are really, really hard to kill. In fact, you know, in the US and actually across the world, the only way to really inactivate them is to um, use high pressure and high temperature together, kind of like put it in a can or put it in a pouch. And then by doing that, then we're using, you know, um, the combination of those two, plus maybe even something in the formulation to inactivate the spores. So that's why we don't. So and then in that particular sense, we call that a sterilization technique, whereas HPP is still pasteurization. Like at some point, the food is still going to spoil. But what we're doing is just kind of really extending the shelf life. And at the very beginning, try to inactivate as many of the pathogens that you have in there. Um, typically, you know, you'll probably have them in low levels anyway, but with the rise of FISMA, we then have to demonstrate that we have a uh, five log reduction or 99.999% reduction of these pathogens. Yeah, five nines. Uh, that's how I remember that, 99.999% reduction in the pathogens or the bacteria that can actually kill us. Yeah, now that's going to be my next question. So you answered that uh, the five log reduction, that's the number that is required by FDA to um, by the by the FISMA or by the regulations. 
Yes, if you're using um, a non-thermal technique for pasteurizing your foods, and in this particular case, we're talking about raw pet foods, the fact that we're dealing with raw meats, but then not using a heat or a thermal process to kill them, then we're relying solely on um, pressure. This is kind of something a little bit new. You know, people might think 20 years should be somewhat proven by now, right? But the truth of the matter is it still is not. There's still a lot of questions that we need to to research and kind of figure out. It doesn't usually work with some foods or we don't advise that we use it for some foods, especially like those that have uh, what we call a low water activity. So something that's pasty, not a whole lot of active water moving around in the product, it's not going to work well. So the good news is for raw pet foods, whether or not it's in, um, I guess, maybe a fresh form, a frozen or eventually to be freeze dried, you know, meats usually have a very, very high water activity. So, so it will work for that one. But unless we freeze dry or do something else um, after HPP, then we probably still have to refrigerate or freeze the raw pet food or freeze dry it. And now all of a sudden it goes into like a what we call a shelf stable form. So it's something that can be stored just like any other dry kibble. Yeah, so the process will be you first going to apply HPP and after that you can do the freeze drying process or just store as raw or refrigerate mm -hmm. or sorry, uh, frozen or refrigerated, right? Yes. So it's a pre-step before your final product and uh, right. yeah. you can have the yeah. further steps after that. Yeah, and then there's other segments of the pet food industry right now that are also using HPP. So those are kind of like the what I call the fresh format. So let's say, you know, at home, you know, some people would prefer to make food for their pets themselves. So, you know, hey, I'm having a chicken and rice dinner for myself and my family, my humans. But then, you know, for the pets, I also want them to experience a chicken and rice dinner. So but these days, you know, obviously, it takes a lot of time to prepare. So then we have some of the fresh forms where you can get like a chicken and rice dinner that usually comes into a pouch. It's already been cooked. And so there, the cooking process itself kills the bacteria, but then um, you may apply HPP to just extend the shelf life of that product. Okay, no, that's great. And for how long um, can HPP extend the shelf life? So if you, for fresh pet food? Yeah, it really depends. Um, so different from thermal processing, um, where usually when we figure out, like, let's say you had a sausage and you wanted to figure out how to cook it, usually we think about, of, okay, what's its form or shape and then how big is it? And then we can calculate how long we should apply the temperature um, mm -hmm. for that particular product for the amount of, you know, for how long we should do that so that the product is safe at the end for us to consume. But in HPP, it's very formulation dependent. We have to look at you know, what's in there? How much water is in there? How much fat? Um, are there any other ingredients that could contribute to killing the pathogens? And so when it comes to spoilage microorganisms, and if your goal is to extend the shelf life, normally if you made it, I'll just go back to my chicken and rice dinner example. If you were to make a chicken and rice dinner at home, if you had leftovers, maybe you'd just put it in the refrigerator for like three days at most, right? Mm -hmm. you, you hope somebody in your family would consume it <laughs> within 30 days and it doesn't stay there. If it goes past that, you start kind of wondering whether or not this is spoiled and then maybe you would throw that away. But with HPP, so think about that kind of time frame also if you are making a chicken and rice dinner for your pets that you're going to cook for them. 
But this time around, you wanted something convenient, so you purchased something similar from the store. If you HPP that, there's a pretty good chance that you might be able to make it to 30 days or 45 days. And so mm -hmm. that's something um, that uh, a lot of consumers then would prefer, right? Because if they want to stock up on some yeah. of these uh, materials, then it's a little bit easier to manage. Yeah. So you mentioned there are many, many different aspects in the uh, formulation or in mm -hmm. the ingredient itself that uh, the food matrix that can affect or influence how you're going to set up the HPP protocol. What is the most challenging aspect? You mentioned that moisture is one, so we mm -hmm. high moisture is good. What would be the second or third one that you think can add challenge for you when you're uh, trying to um, achieve the best HPP protocol for that specific food? Yeah, definitely. So um, you, in general, any kind of food that is HPP'd, um, a lot of the tollers and people that are going to help you with your validation studies, and certainly the FDA inspectors, are going to look at two factors. Number one, um, the water activity. Normally, you want a water activity higher than 0.95, although we've seen some products that can go with a water activity as low as 0.92. However, the lower it gets, and by the time it falls below 0.9, it really becomes hard for HPP to be effective. Um, if it is around 0.92, you may be able to make it work, but then you could be applying the pressure for a longer period of time. So with HPP, the pricing is typically the longer, because it's still a batch process. Products are loaded into the pressure vessel. It gets sealed. And so if your product is something that can be done in three minutes, from a HPP services point of view, I can still do a whole bunch of these throughout the day. But then with certain pet foods, what we found is sometimes their formulation is such that, it, let's say, you know, it doesn't have as much moisture in there. Um, certainly the other, the second factor is pH. Normally the more acidic the product is, the better it does with HPP. But in this case, we're talking about pet food, so we don't consider them normally an acidic product. So then that kind of goes away. The third thing we're finding is fats. So the higher the fat, typically you can still get the five log reduction. But sometimes, and this is more the case with um, listeria, they tend to recover quickly. You know, after HPP, after that stressor is gone, you put them in the refrigerator, right? And so listeria loves to be in an environment where there's lots of nutrients and it's refrigerated. So then if there was fat in there, what some people have found is that that can give it some protection from the pressure. So it allows the listeria to repair themselves, recover, and then they start growing again. So, so fat probably is this, this um, another factor that I would tell um, pet food manufacturers to just kind of watch out for. And if your company is, let's say, making two different types of formula, they're both chicken, but then one is a different uh, starting material of chicken than the other. So then slight differences, let's say, in fat levels. Don't assume that how I pressurize or HPP one product is going to work for the second product. You really have to just do your due diligence and try it out again and get some testing done. It's more complicated than, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for everyone to be aware that it's not a simple process and uh, you have to be, it has to be specific for a formulation and what you're looking for, right? Yeah, and I think the, the part of the complication is, you know, we now have a couple of companies that are doing HPP and I'm not just talking about pet foods in general, but even human foods. But everybody kind of holds their data close to their vest. So there's a lot of privately held data. 
Um, the machine itself can be pretty expensive to acquire and also maintain. So there's also not a whole lot of universities that may have an HPP. So um, the research and getting data published kind of lags behind where the demand is from industry. So I think eventually, hopefully it catches up so that we kind of get more data out there that is shared, it's publicly available to everybody in the form of a peer-reviewed publication. And then we start developing these best practices and, you know, um, universities, government agencies, and industry can kind of come together and maybe come up with some of the do's and don'ts, if you will, <laughs> of HPP. Yeah. Yeah, and for sure, it's not easy to have a HPP machine in a laboratories. Um, you probably you know much better than me, but is yeah, it's challenging. And, yeah, I think the challenge is maintaining habit. them. Yeah. Uh, so far in your laboratory, uh, you said you work with some pet food companies. Um, so you help them develop the IDOHPP protocol for their specific products, correct? Yes. So we work. So there's a couple of universities that have an HPP machine, and more importantly, um, they um, are. I guess the laboratories are designed to the point that they can provide some of these testing services. So some folks can do some consultation, like we do. Some labs can also do the actual validation study, where we actually introduce the pathogen to the product and really challenge it or test HPP, like what pressure did you choose? What time did you choose? And then let's see if that's going to work for you, if you get your five log reduction. And then some of us can also do a shelf life study. And then it even goes as far as some folks can process some materials for the nutritionist. And maybe, you know, then you can do some of the checking to see whether or not the, you know, are some of the nutrition the same before and after HPP and maybe even some digestibility and palatability type studies. Uh, my lab, I run a service laboratory at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln through the center. And so um, we've been pretty lucky. It's sort of just kind of word of mouth. People have been like, oh, there's somebody at UNL that's able to do these testing. And for me anyway, because I'm one of those people that are, I really like processing and I'm just curious in general, that's more as a lot of professors are. Um, I really like talking to food manufacturers and trying to figure out like, what are you trying to do? Because everybody tries to be innovative and can you figure out a way to set their brand apart from everybody else. And so through that, it's a big learning experience for me as an engineer. I'm not a, a nutritionist <laughs> by any means. So this has all been really a, a fun ride. You know, I've gotten to meet a lot of good people. Everybody that we've met has put food safety first over quality. That's first and foremost very important, and so I've, I've learned a lot about how these products have been made, are being made. Yeah, no, and I think we all need to work together in different fields to achieve a good product. It's not only nutrition, it's not only safety, it's all together. It doesn't have if it's nutrition, but it's not safe, but if it's safe and it's not nutritious, so uh, it's great that we can all work together towards the same pathway and you know help the industry to achieve their goals and produce safe and quality, high quality diets for pets. And you mentioned there's some, maybe the high fat or some other challenges uh, uh, that make a little bit difficult for introducing HPP in some formulas. Uh, do you think there's any benefits in combining HPP or with other methods like uh, acidulants or other techniques to help with uh, inactivation of some bacteria? Yeah, definitely. I think um, as with anything like a multi-hurdle approach, it's always the best, right? So it, uh, it always starts with having as you know, a high quality ingredients from the very beginning. 
Now, granted, having said that, doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to use human-grade um, meats for pet foods. In fact, you know, I'm of the belief that the pet food industry kind of really helps make the meat processing industry sustainable. You know, we take parts of animals that are not going to be consumed by humans and whether or not we put them through the rendering process so we can still extract valuable proteins and fats, we now have a channel where we can also convert them straight into like a raw pet food formula. So depending on what you use, you know, they're gonna have different kinds of microbial loads, but there may be some things that you can do even at the front end, like, you know, during harvest, where, you know, if they can get those materials frozen right away, rather than kind of sitting and waiting to be frozen, then that at least stops the microbial activity from the very beginning and kind of at least minimizes the microbial load. And then throughout the process, as you're mixing, grinding, think about some of the ingredients that you're going to add. So we've had some folks, like you said, add acidulants. There's a lot of um, antimicrobial in, um, interest. So, you know, what can we use in these formulations? Um, we've also had some people try some bacteriophage to see, you know, how what, that might work. And then you get, get to the HPP and the kill step. And then after that, you know, if the goal is to have something very similar a dry kibble, then you might go about freeze drying the product. And if that's the case, then freeze drying can also help extend the shelf life. And now you've gotten into a form where the moisture content or the water activity is not high enough to support microbial growth. So, so there's a lot of steps, but like you said earlier, you have to keep track of your chemistry or chemical safety, make sure it's still a complete and um, balanced nutrition. And in physical safety, as you can imagine, there's a lot of grinding and size reduction that occurs. So always um, remember, you know, some of your foreign materials to me, you know, may get into the formulation and stuff. So there, HPP is not going to help you. <laughs> HPP is all about um, the looking at the biological risk or the microbial food safety of the food. Yeah. And do you think there is any difference because you have experience with HPP in, your, HPP in other areas as well? Um, for example, if you apply HPP in raw pet food, which is uh, ground meat, compared to a piece of steak in which the bacterial load is going to be only on the outer layer, so less area of contact. So uh, is it harder to achieve those five log, log reductions in when the meat is ground compared to a piece of steak, or is it similar? It's... Um... In a lot of ways, HPT, again, is kind of different from thermal processing in that as long as, well, I guess I should say, the more homogeneous the product is. So if, if all your ingredients have been ground and mixed together, there's a very good chance that, you know, every bit and pieces of your product is exactly the same. The hard part is, because you mentioned steak, is if there's like a large piece of bone in there, you know, so even, or even like ground up bone, right? So grind size is also pretty important. To us, those bone pieces might be too small that you know they're not really gonna choke any pets. But to a bacteria that is much smaller, it's like, oh, I have a cave. I can hide behind yeah. this cave <laughs> and avoid the pressure, right? So you can think of it that way. So always kind of um, think about what the grind size are going to be. And I'm not saying that just because you have bone pieces in there, it's never gonna work. But um, that could be a point of concern, so. Yeah, no, definitely. And more challenges for the processing and, and for everything. 
And you see a lot of use of HPP in the in the treat market in the raw treat or. Yeah, well, yeah, the raw treats are kind of interesting. So, so it depends on if they are kind of like a single protein. So, for example, like a beef liver. So we think of a beef liver as being one big organ. And then they're still going to be either sliced into cubes or into strips, right? And so in that particular case, you can kind of argue that, well, the microbial contamination is just going to be on the surface. And that's fine. Um, so typically, my grad student actually, we did a study where we were comparing just regular livers, whole or sliced, compared to some ground pet foods. And normally the starting point for microbial loads is going to be higher in the ground than in those whole muscle or whole organs, uh, if you will. So in some ways, HPP could be very effective for treats because the microbial loads are low enough that, you know, let's say they're only 10 to the three or 10 to the four. But if you choose a process that's always going to give you a five log reduction, then you almost eliminate all of them. Right. Whereas in the ground material, you might be starting off with 10 to the four, 10 to the five. And if it's a really bad day and somebody forgot to put it in the refrigerator, maybe 10 to the six, there all of a sudden it's really challenging because you were, um, and when I say microbial load, it's like all the bacteria and not just the pathogens and, and everything. So if you're looking at a five log reduction, some of the, uh, hopefully the pathogens is low enough to begin with that you still eliminate all of them. But then you may be starting high on the spoilage microorganisms. So things that will not necessarily kill, but could still give um, an upset stomach. Um, I would add, though, because I've had a lot of people kind of question or at least bring up the idea that, well, a lot of the natural microflora in the um, in raw meats are not really deadly to our pets. You know, they're uh, the makeup of their guts. Uh, the acids that are in there, the microbes that are in there are able to kind of handle um, what we would consider pathogens for humans. And that's the interesting thing is when we're dealing with raw pet foods, not only do we need to make sure that the food is safe for your pets, but it's also safe for everybody in that household. So, yeah, so that's really where the concern is, right? Like, you know, you want to make sure that whoever may be handling the food itself, so parents, kids, Maybe you have your grandparents living with you or somebody immunocompromised living in the household. We want to make sure that we don't even introduce these pathogens in the household in the first place. And then certainly there may be potential transfer when we're cleaning up after our pets. That could also be another point of entry or point for a, of cross-contamination for us to to um, interact with some of these pathogens if it passes through their their digestive system. Yeah, no, for sure, dogs and cats are more resistant to uh, the development of the pathological conditions, and we are less, and there are even more right. populations, as you said, immunocompromised people, children, uh, elderly people that mm -hmm. will not be very recommendable to introduce those bacteria in their, in their space, and the yeah. cross-contamination is very easy to make, and sometimes it's just the dogs mm -hmm. will eat their food and go there and lick your hand, <laughs> lick your arm. And so it's mm -hmm. the small details as well that you think you're doing everything right, but it's just, yeah, it's going to be there. Yeah, it is interesting too, because like I read a paper earlier this year where it was just a survey study trying to ask people, you know, how often do you wash your pet food's bowl? And so the survey, I think it was done in the United Kingdom. And, you know, when you think about it, you feed your pet, but you have to leave for work. So you're not really there wash their bowl as soon as they finish 
But then you have kids that come home from school and they start playing with the pet, not real, you know, they're touching everything, right? Because they're almost the same size as your pet. <laughs> so it's very accessible to them. And then you come home and then you're tired and you forget. So you just kind of dump more food in there. And so a lot of the survey actually showed, I forget the percentage, but it was definitely over 50% only wash their pet foods or their pet's food bowl once a day. And it's in the evening. Right. Yeah, I bet some people not even wash it once a day. (laughs) Yeah, let's not say that. (laughs) And it depends on the type of the bowl as well. The material is going to have a huge impact uh, as well. So there's many, many things to consider. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. And there are many European companies that do a great job in educating their consumers on how to handle the food and how to uh, how to wash the bowls and how often and what bowls are the best. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is a lot of effort on the industry as well, too to make yeah. it safe, as safe as they can. So that's is, is very important and very challenging as well. Yeah, and I think this may be timely too, just uh, the recent um, approval by AFCO for the yeah. pet food labels. Now that they're gonna add more information and some icons with regards to how you should be safely storing the product and handling the product, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm really grateful for, for that change. Yeah, no, they'll be great as well. And I like the icons too, because sometimes you get overwhelmed with so many letters and you just don't read, but you have an icon is a very good way to grab people's attention. I don't, I'm not a marketing person for sure, but I'm a mm-hmm. consumer, so I know what I look in a bag. So. There you go. <laughs> well, it becomes more standard, right? It's standardized. So then when you see it on one brand and you see it on another brand, you know what it means. It's not kind of like this you know, I'm not exactly sure what that means, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah, no, that'll be great for sure. Uh, I think one of my last question is, uh, you mentioned there is, of course, different type of diets, or it depends on how you treat the raw material, they're going to arrive. Uh, maybe for you to apply the HVP, they're going to have different microbial loads, right? Mm-hmm. What has been the worst microbial load have you ever seen in the, that arrived for you from the pet food industry? And usually it ranges for... Mm, what is the range that you see of the microbial load? Yeah, so um, this is not necessarily on a com- um, like a product that we tested for a company. Um, I, as I mentioned, I have a grad student, um, Leslie Cancio. She graduated last year. What was one of the interesting things about the project was we were really curious, you know, especially during the pandemic, there were a lot of people that were selling um, pet foods online direct to consumer. And so we were really trying to understand, well, for me anyway, I was like, I wonder how they can do that. Because if you were selling meats for human consumption, it has to be FSIS inspected. You know, somebody has to have seen the quality of that meat. But with pet foods, you know, there's not necessarily that level of inspection that happens. So I was like, okay, well, then let's let's see, you know, let's try to identify some of these smaller, more boutique um kind of uh, companies that were selling direct to consumer but they were selling things that are really raw so we did we identified four that were in different parts of the country because i also wanted to challenge you know how long would it take them to ship a frozen product all the way to the middle of the country or to lincoln nebraska and you know what was the condition of the packaging was it suitable or appropriate for sending a frozen raw material raw meat material um was it already at the temperature abuse by the time we receive it, and then what were the typical microbial loads. And so I think um, the maybe in terms of wars um, that we saw, and it's not on the pathogens, but normally 
um, something that is ground up meats. And these were usually a combination of meats and or muscle meat and organ meats combined. They were following, um, I think, a prey model diet. The ones that we saw were like 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8 um, in aerobic plate counts. So what does that mean to a general consumer? Most of the time when we see numbers like 10 to the 6 or a million cells of aerobic bacteria growing in the food, that's usually already a sign of spoilage. So, so that was kind of concerning. And then the other thing that we saw was they were they tend to be really high on lactic acid bacteria as well. And so again, depending on the numbers, um, usually around 10 to the five is, or about 100,000 lactic acid bacteria cells um, in a meat product um, that's you know endogenous to that meat, then we kind of think of that as also kind of getting nearly spoiled. Um, granted, you know, it's, it's hard because we didn't really classify what kind of lactic acid bacteria they are, because there are certainly some strains that could be a probiotic, but, um, but some are not. They're just regular, um, spoilage micro. You may not get any benefit from them. But so those are probably the worst ones that we saw was the fact that, um, depending on who is making them. And granted, our study was very small. We were only looking at four boutique type pet food companies that were selling direct to consumers, we definitely saw that as a sign of number one, they may not be using as high quality of uh, an ingredient to begin with. Number two, it also gave us some pause and concern for, well, is the space where they're making the food hygienic? Because maybe they did start off with good quality ingredients, but then wasn't necessarily uh, a clean space. And then this one I could, I can share when we do some consulting with some of these raw pet food companies, a lot of times when, you know, let's say we got this letter, you know, we had a product that's, you know, tested positive for Listeria or Salmonella. It's never about because they didn't have high quality ingredients to begin with. It's not about because HPP did not work for them. It was actually because their grinders were not being cleaned properly. So I also cannot stress the importance of sanitation in your process. And that um, kind of like that multi-hurdle approach we were talking about earlier, that's your first battle is, you know, whether or not you're preparing foods for yourself, preparing foods to be sold, you have to make sure that you um, handle the food safely and in a clean uh, environment, sanitized environment. Yeah, and sometimes if we you look at the bigger picture, picture mm -hmm. and something, a big problem, but it's right in your faces, right? And mm -hmm. it's a very simple process of um, that we do every yeah. day that sometimes is, uh, we don't have our eyes open to it. So that's yeah. a great advice as well. And to always mm -hmm. pay attention to this basic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, basic procedures that are necessary, but sometimes yeah. we, we don't have our eyes on it. Yeah, we can adopt like an expensive HPP protocol, but if you're not cleaning your grinders, right, so you're not breaking them apart properly, then, yeah. um, then you know, the, the problem will persist, I guess. Yeah. And as you mentioned, after the HPP, they can be, they may need to be grind, depends on the, uh, your final product, freeze dried and everything. So those processes need to be uh, high quality standards as well, not only before HPP, after is important too. Oh, I think we can talk about HPP and many other f uh, factors that can impact it for a long time. But I think for today, it uh, is a great conversation. Uh, unless you want to share any other insights about st your study or any other information. 
Yeah, no, for those of you that are looking for more information, um, you can easily get a hold of me. My email is mzanel2, number two at unl.edu. Um, I will also say that last year, uh, or no, not last year, it felt like last year, but last March, <laughs> um, I have a couple of um, kind of partners in the industry that really were telling me, you know, like, Grace, you need to come up with like a workshop or at least share some of these best practices that you've learned in industry or just doing testing for companies and from some of your research. So with their help, because they also provided a lot of the content and us here at UNL, we put together a one day workshop, which has now become an online course. So if you're really interested to learn more about best practices in HPP and also freeze drying, um, contact me and I can send you a link and then also show you how to enroll in the course. No, oh, that's awesome. That's great information. I'm sure, you know, raw pet food is still a small part of the market, but the growth rate is is there and is going to stay regardless if people like it or not. You know, the consumer is asking for it. So it's great if there is going to be there that we find a safe way for everyone to, to produce those products. And my last question is, do you have any tips for success or any successful person that you, you know, you met in your life that you have a specific trait or characteristic that you, you know, that's inspired you or any tips for success for younger people or even anyone who is? Um, I think always be curious. I think, you know, like, you know, um, as when people present you with information, kind of use your own gut to kind of decide whether or not that's credible or not. Ask lots of questions. I think um, you don't really, I guess, demonstrate uh, knowledge or um, proficiency in a particular area until you yourself have asked some of those questions, you know, questions that you want more clarification on or just kind of questioning whether or not this is the latest data that we have, you know, uh, and stuff. So always be curious. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely a great advice. And for whoever is in not only academia, but also in the industry, you know, be curious and don't settle to that specific product or formula. And consumer demands innovation, so everyone's going to have to be curious and to keep their business going forward. Yeah, I like what you said. Like, you know, to innovate, we can't just always um, accept the status quo. Always yeah. ask. You know, why do why can't we do it something differently? Uh, yeah. Like that. No, that's awesome. That's a great conversation. Thank you very much for uh, for being here with us today. I'm sure our audience learned a lot about HPP and it would be great to have you again in uh, our next podcast. We'll talk a little bit more about HPP and maybe other effects on antioxidants and other properties as well. Sounds good. Looking forward to um, meeting up with you again and maybe even collaborating in the future, right? Um, yeah, of course, of course. I'm an engineer. I need a partner in crime. I'm trying to find nutritionists to help. <laughs> I, I also need engineers in my you know, portfolio because <laughs> I'm not one for sure. I know the very basic to kind of survive the, you know, making pet food, but mm -hmm. I'm for sure having nutritionists and engineers on board to make the ideal product, I would say. There you go. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed uh, doing this podcast with you. Me too. Thank you. Mm -hmm.